Welcome to the My Personal Football Coach Youth Soccer Player Development Podcast, episode 48 with Greg Broughton. Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, welcome back to another show. Uh, look, well into lockdown here in London. Well, we just started lockdown here, so uh, wherever you are in the world, I hope you're safe and uh, keep yourself busy while we're all quarantined. Uh, like I said, I've been doing lots of podcasts. Um, just recorded, obviously got this one coming out today. Just did one a minute ago, just before I started reco- um, getting this one ready for getting live. Uh, got a couple more this week. Uh, so uh, hopefully going to keep you guys uh, entertained when we're all stuck indoors. Uh, got a big one else coming as well with uh, Michael Beale and Harry Watling, so two uh, giants of the, of, uh, not the academy football, but now obviously Michael at Rangers. It's really, um, they've agreed to do like a question and answer session. So if you've got a question for Michael Beale or Harry Watling, obviously Harry's been on the show before. Uh, West Ham Academy coaches worked at Millwall and Chelsea as well. Uh, just you can just email me sort at mypersonalfootballcoach.com and we can get your answer to those questions. So I'm going to do that at the end of the week. Uh, but back to this show here, Greg Broughton, um, academy manager at Bodo Glimt in Norway. Greg's had a great uh, illustrious career in academy football. Uh, managed academy manager at Norwich. Worked on recruitment in Norwich at Luton Town, Rushton and Diamonds. So he's been there, done that, worked his way up from the beginning. Uh, this is a really Interesting show, uh, really interesting interview with Greg, uh, sharing his uh, his time at the academy, he's working his way up. Obviously, didn't have a playing career such in the game. So interesting how you know he worked his way up, and and the key messages of you know working hard, putting the extra hours in, and you know what he describes as you know working an awful lot to to make it in the game, uh, to create that reputation, and working with some top players down the world, where Ben Chilwell at Leicester. Uh, you know, identifying him as a nine-year-old, obviously Max Aaron's at Luton, someone obviously I know very well. So a really interesting uh, interview, really blessed to have him on the show, uh, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this one. So uh, yeah, hope you enjoy it. Remember, keep safe, and uh, yeah, and we can get through this one together. Take care. So Greg Broughton, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Can you give us a little bit of a brief uh, outline of your playing and coaching experience up to this point? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I figured out quite quickly that I wasn't going to be good enough to be a player at 15, 16, so I started coaching, uh, did the old uh, prelim award, um, and then uh, just backed that up by going away and studying and doing, doing my sports science qualifications uh, to kind of support that. And then got a lucky break in the game, coaching part-time at Wickham Wanderers. And then from there, moved on, did some work in America. Uh, then got my first full-time opportunity at Rushton and Diamonds and had six great years there. Got the opportunity to go to Luton and had a further six great years there. And then I, I had the opportunity to go and work with Norwich City and had six years at Norwich before finally moving over here to Norway uh, two years ago. Fantastic. So ten, tell us a bit about that. What was that first experience at Wickham like? What was, that first, what was your first job there? Uh, I was heading up recruitment. Uh, I was kind of given an area which was part of Buckinghamshire, Milton Keynes. Uh, these were the days where uh, academies were just kind of starting to work with nine and ten year olds because before that the academies weren't working with players to the age of 14. So my job was to kind of go out and identify eight and nine year olds with some potential, uh, bring them in and start coaching them once or twice a week in Milton Keynes and then 
to go down to Bisham Abbey a couple of times a week to to work with the squads there as well. So did did you have any experience in this previously? Uh, not not in a professional game. No, I'd coached at a grassroots level, uh, and I've gone and got my what would be the equivalent of a level two now. Um, and I know I knew Wickham were looking to kind of expand their work throughout Buckinghamshire a little bit, so that that was my opportunity to go in and uh, start working there. So, so the question is going to be then: What do you what do you, what are, what are you looking for from a nine and ten year old at that age? What was was it difficult understanding? what the level was, they say, in academy football, didn't they? It was, I suppose there's a big difference between academy football and the grassroots football. Yeah, well, I think the first thing is there wasn't really any benchmarks because academy football was only just very much starting with nine and ten-year-olds. And the second thing, I was only just starting, so I didn't really have a clue. Um, I think it's very, very easy to spot who the best footballer pit on the pitch is at any age group. Anybody could do that. But I think I was very much learning uh, on my feet at that stage. So I was kind of learning the lessons and making the mistakes that we all have to make to, to, to carry on in our careers. So then tell us a little bit about that first experience in the game. What was it like? What were the major challenges? What were what your main takeaways that you took the rest of your career? <clears throat> yeah, I think the, I think the, uh, one of the biggest lessons was, I think you learned very quickly that, that the club badge didn't really matter at all. If you were good with young players and, and communicate with their parents and give them a, an idea with what you were doing, then they would usually at least come and have a look and see how you were with things. So we were trying to set up in an area where, don't forget, MK Dons hadn't really come into Milton Keynes at that stage. So Luton were doing a little bit of work in the area and Leicester were doing a little bit of work in the area. But we were able to come in and attract uh, some parents into a new project. Wickham were quite new to the Football League, so nobody really knew who they were in Milton Keynes at that stage. But I felt we were able to come in and make an impact and work with some young players who have gone on and had half-decent careers. But like I said, we also made a lot of mistakes at that time as well. Uh, when I look back on the coaching, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe that was kind of what I thought was high-level coaching at that stage. Uh -huh. uh, when I went back and thought about some of the ways we were approaching players that that wasn't particularly professional when I look back about how how I would do that now at this stage of my career but I think we were competitive with what we were doing because I think the whole industry was learning at that stage interesting so then how long did you spend there at Wickham I had two years part-time at Wickham Wanderers and then I was really lucky I got my first full-time break uh, with Rushton and Diamonds who themselves were a brand new club uh, an unbelievable learning environment for me to go into in terms of the people that I could go and work alongside and observe and learn from and thinking about where, where some of those people have, have been in their careers so, and have so gone did, to with their so, careers. So, so sorry, Greg, did, yeah. you, but did you go to America before in the, between that? Yeah, yeah I, I went to America, uh, started going to America when I was at university, so did started doing summers out there and then got more time and was working out there kind of six months, nine months at a time. And then when I came back to start working at Wickham Wanderers, um, I was kind of just going out there in the close season. And then I had a difficult decision to make because I was offered a, a job full time in America with a club who was going to kind of sponsor me through my green card. And then I also got the, the opportunity at the same time to, to go full time into Rushton and Diamonds. And I chose at that stage to kind of stay in the UK and try and build my career from there. So just just before we go to Rushton, it's just interesting because... Um, when I was speaking to Anthony Hayes yesterday from Charlton, we, he talked about mm -hmm. America. It was, it was a really important part of my career. I think it's a great opportunity just to get so many hours on the grass, don't you? Like it's a great way to cut your teeth. And unless you are lucky enough to be full time, you're very rarely going to be coaching two or three hours every single day. 
yeah, I think the two things you learn from America is, first of all, it's like you said, there's hours underneath the belt. I kind of, I think about when the Beatles, and you read about how the Beatles kind of learned their trade and went for hours or, or mm. just in a minibus driving around Germany and playing gigs with nobody there. And I think when you when you learn your trade, you have to spend hours doing it. And I think the other thing is, because the conditions aren't always great and the players you were working with weren't always great, you had to be able to entertain them. You had to keep them focused and wanting to be there. And sometimes you were coaching six hours a day in 90 degree heat, very little shade, and, and your sessions had to be engaging and you had to really want the youngsters to, to, to come and be part of that. So I think the part of your coaching that you never learn on any coaching courses, that, that was where I kind of learned that out, out there in America. And I made some great friends along the way as well. Okay, cool. So then tell us about the, the Rustin job. What was that like when you went in there? I mean, it's quite fortunate as well to, there's not that many full-time jobs knocking around in, in football. So you, you must have, uh, well, you were quite fortunate to get offered one. You must obviously a man in high demand. Yeah, well, not, not really at that stage. I was 2000. So again, full-time jobs in football were, were, were tiny compared to how it is now with, a, with, with Cat 1 and Cat 2 academies. So I got the opportunity initially to go in and set the community scheme up at Rushton and Diamonds. Uh, it was a new club. They were really, really ambitious, had unbelievable facilities, really, really good staff. And then my first year there, we were very lucky. We got promoted to the Football League. Um, Pips Yeovil at the post to get promoted from the conference as it was in those days. So all of a sudden, then we had to set up a youth policy as well as a, a community policy. So I was able to be involved with that from the outset. And Jeff Harrop came into the club from Colchester and I had some great years working alongside Jeff. But also the first team staff who were very close to it as well. Brian Talbot was the manager with obviously fantastic playing experience for Arsenal and England. Uh, his number two was... Um, was Terry Wesley, who's obviously come on to, to, to manage himself in the Football League, but also oversee academies at West Ham, at Derby, uh, etc. Um, we had Barry Hunter there as a player and then as a player coach. And then Barry has obviously gone on to be head of first team recruitment to Liverpool. Steve Spooner, who's gone on to be under 18 coach at, at, at Birmingham City. So a, a really, really fantastic group of people to be around and to learn from. And every single day, that was a learning environment. That was that was more. My, that was my university. My six years at, at Russian and Diamonds. The learning I did there was was unbelievable. So, so, you, so you you were there setting up the community scheme, and and what were you doing in the academy? Again, it started off with player recruitment, and then eventually went on to be, as it was called in those days, the youth development officer, the role that would be academy manager now. Um, we had to attack it from from two different angles because we had nothing. We didn't have a single player in the building, and then after getting promoted, we had to put an under-18 youth team out a few weeks or a few months later. So we kind of attacked it by looking at players who were kind of coming out of other professional clubs in the area. And we picked up players uh, like Lee Tomlin, who came out of uh, Leicester City at 16, Simeon Jackson. And then at the same time, we were, were going in and working with eight, nine, ten-year-olds in the area to try and build up the academy from the bottom end as well. And that's where we brought in players like Ben Chilwell, who's now obviously at Leicester City in England, uh, and many others as well, who, who are at the bottom end of the academy as well. So just to build a coaching structure, a, a coaching syllabus, uh, sports science, as it was in his very early days then, uh, bringing physiotherapists, coaches, etc. Uh, so that, that was the project at Rushton. So it's interesting, um, people associate working in football with the glamorous glamorous type of role glamorous task but obviously how much glamour was there down at Rushton and Dimes assuming that you're on a quite tight budget and had to and had to work some miracles 
yeah, zero budget like, initially, <laughs> and then a very small budget once the football league started putting some money into it. But it, it was brilliant. Uh, it was long, long hours, 15, 16 hours a day, five, six days a week with, with very few breaks in the summertime. But I, I, was, I was still very early in my career and I was able to throw myself completely into that. And we built up a group of coaches who were equally prepared to do that. And I think it, it just became infectious, that, that, that kind of desire to improve yourself and improve everyone else in the building. And like I say, because the facilities at Russian and Diamonds were spectacular, uh, they were unbelievable. When I think back to, to facilities I've, I've worked on since then, then then that was also a really glamorous place to, to drive into and that think, oh, I'm so lucky and privileged to be working in this environment, especially compared to how we'd had it at Wick and Wanderers, where we hadn't been so privileged with the facilities. So that, that was really good as well. So then tell us a little bit then, you've got to create a curriculum, a club philosophy from scratch. How do you go about that? What did that look like? Are you... You know, are you, are you playing like a non-league team, or are you trying to play like a like a Guardiola's Pep Barcelona? Yeah, well, to be honest with you, it was completely detached from how the first team wanted to play at those days. Because Rushton were lucky; they had a, they had a very very big playing budget at that day, and were able to go and sign who they wanted to in terms of the lower leagues, and got promoted all the way up to to League One in the end. So we had a little bit more of a holistic approach to putting together the curriculum, but it was still the first time I'd ever done something like that. So. I was very lucky. I went and spent time with with good people uh, who I felt I could learn from and talk to and pick up ideas from. So I went and spent spent time with other academy managers and said, "How did you do that? What would you do again if you were starting with so the knowledge you've got now?" Can you can you give some name drop? Who did you go and speak to? And as, yeah, well, I think that was that, that. Yeah, I think I went and started speaking to uh, people like Ricky Martin, who was at Norwich at the time, people like Dan Ashworth, who was at Cambridge United at the time. So uh, people like uh, Stuart Smith and Dean Rastrick, who were at Luton at the time. So people like that. And then obviously in-house, we had a lot of knowledge as well in terms of Terry Wesley and the work he'd done at Ipswich and at Luton before he'd come over to Russian and Diamonds. So, so it was kind of begging, stealing and borrowing bits from those people. And they were all kind enough to share, share their ideas and their thoughts with, with me. And, and, and we had a good group of people in-house as well uh, in terms of Jeff Harrop, in terms of Paul Driver, some very talented and hardworking individuals and between us we were able then to kind of create that piece of work so give us a little bit of a taste of that piece of work what did that look like in practice i mean your sessions like front on the line for example yeah at that stage i think it was very uh limited in terms of in terms of how a coaching syllabus might look now uh i think in terms of uh small-sided games it i, I think if i if i reflect back on it now it was a lot more uh, individually tech technically driven and it was game-based um, and I think we had small spaces to work on the AstroTurf pitch that it was a Russian and Diamonds was probably a 50 by 30 um, so it was a small space to work on so there's lots of technical work lots of four and five aside games uh, to support that but very rarely did we get to go onto onto the grass especially with the players before the age of 16 and do anything in big in big spaces Interesting. And, and what about, you know, because you're almost creating a, a culture, if you like. You know, we talk about a lot in academy football. It's, it's almost yeah. you know, a cliche. How do you create a culture from nothing? What are the expectations you're looking for? You talked about, you know, working hard and trying to get everyone to improve. Uh, how do you, you know, get the buy-in from coaches? How do you get everyone on the same page? I think we were, we were lucky to have a group of coaches who bought into that philosophy straight away, whether that was intentional by bringing those coaches in or more, more luck 
I, I still really don't know. How, how many? How, what think, was your coaching staff? How many coaches did you have, for like part time and full time? And yeah, it, it was a majority part time. We probably had four or five full time, and the rest of the staff were, were part time. So probably fifteen to twenty part time coaches. Uh, we did a lot of in service, delivered in house by ourselves, supported by the the, the county FA in Northamptonshire, um, and we really just kind of the, the one thing that that Brian Talbot brought in from the first team level and this is where there was the one kind of connect from the first team down to the academy in terms of the, the philosophy and the culture was was hard hard work and being humble and I think those two things tried underpinned everything we tried to do at Rushton and again you're in an air catchment area there where you're going up you, you had Northampton town on your doorsteps obviously as your local rival and Peterborough United going the other direction but then you also had some very very big clubs in terms of Leicester City, Leicester City and Aston Villa very close to you as well and so how, what did that look like, that relationship with Leicester, Leicester and Villa, for instance? I mean, they're the big boys. What do you do? Just try and fight off the scraps when they, when they don't get? Or you, you got you sneaking and sneaking your under-9s into your, into your yeah, teams? I, yeah, I think in, in those days, we really believed in ourselves. And I think the facilities we had at Rushton sold themselves. Uh, the facilities we had there were probably as good as some of the other clubs who were in the Premier League at that time in terms of what we had to work with. So we really believe that once we brought a young player into Nen Park and showed them the facilities and showed them the coaching staff that they'd want to be there. And I, I think we, we were very lucky to be able to, uh, to to attract some of the young players and young coaches we had working with us at the time into that project. So I, I, we didn't really build relationships with, with any of those clubs. Um, it was more, I think we were quite, uh, we, were, we, we really believed in ourselves and we were quite bullish in saying, if we do things properly here and if we do things well, people will buy into what we're doing and not want to go elsewhere. So tell us a little bit about Ben Chilwell then, what he looked like as an under nine. Interesting to look at, if, you know, could you tell he's going to be a player? Uh, ben was uh, unbelievably focused, uh, had a very, very driven father who, who, who kept him on the straight and narrow and kept him working hard um was uh athletically able had a very strong left foot tactically was very aware and would be a very good learner would pick up information very quickly but when i think about that under nine group we had at that stage uh he would be what i call a silver medalist he'd be somebody that you could easily tell had ability easily you could tell had potential but if you were to go and say look at that group now and tell me three players that you'd put your hat on having a, a playing career at the highest level he certainly wouldn't have been in the top two in the group. He might have been third or fourth in the group in terms of that at that stage. That's, I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? One, one academy manager um, referred to our academy system a bit like throwing a, a pack of eggs against a wall and uh, seeing which one sticks in terms of the not, you know, having no idea in terms of that nine who's going to make it. What do, no. what do you think? What do you, what do you think about that? And in terms of you know, just, just think there's, a lot of, there's a lot of talk about how our academy structure is you know it's very difficult, stressful environment. Have we got it right? Do you think, or what can we do better? Well, I think the first thing is I completely agree that anybody who tells you that they think an under nine can play at the highest level, be that in the Premier League or in the Champions League, I, I'm not sure I buy into that philosophy myself. Um, I think you can see who, who good players are and I think you can see who players who have athletic potential are and I think you can see who players who have uh, mental potential are. I think you can see potential in all of those areas. But you, you, nobody knows what the road is going to look like for those players over the next 10 years. Um, 
if I skip forward to now where I am in Norway, where players don't come into the academy system till 13, that works here in Norway. In the system we've got here, that works. I'm not sure it would work in the UK. The reason it works here in Norway is two things. The grassroots facilities are unbelievable. Uh, and the players get exposed to grassroots coaching, good or bad, four or five times a week. So a grassroots player here at under nine or under 10 would have four or five training sessions a week. Whereas in the UK, again, grassroots coaches, good or bad, facilities, good or bad, they just don't get the exposure to the time and the hours needed. School sports struggles to provide that, especially in primary schools as well. So I, I really believe in the academy system in the UK is right for what the demands of the UK system are. But you have to also accept and you have to be honest, brutally honest with parents from the outset that the chances of them coming in at nine and going all the way through the system are absolutely minimal. But what they should have is a great life experience, make friends for life and come out of it uh, thinking that was a good experience. I enjoyed that. I, I didn't make it through, but I enjoyed the experience. And now I'll end up playing wherever I end up playing. What, what are your major takeaways from your time there at Rushton in terms of thinking about professionally what how you evolved you know, you look, I look back at my time at certain clubs to think, you know, there's different stages I sort of, you know, yeah. uh, matured definitely and took to different things from different clubs. What were the main things you took from Rushton? I think the main thing is I was given absolute responsibility and given a blank sheet to work with. So by doing that, I kind of learned the, the importance of autonomy and ensuring that your, your people working under you have the ability to do that as well. But I think also I made a lot of mistakes at Rushton. Uh, so many different things, so many things where I think I, if I could go back and do that time again, I'd do that differently. So I think it's also the ability to reflect on those mistakes and say, well, don't keep making them. Next time, do it differently if you recognise that. Interesting. So then tell us a little bit then about your next challenge. Uh, what was that and how did it come about? Well, it was the opportunity to go to Luton. So uh, Luton was my hometown club. It was the club I grew up as a supporter of. And obviously I was very lucky growing up in the 80s. Luton were a top flight team playing Liverpool and uh, Man United and Arsenal and Tottenham every single week. And I was lucky to go with my dad and watch those games and be schooled really in a really excellent playing style of football in terms of how David Pleat got his team to play. And then Jimmy Ryan, who took over from David Pleat and Ray Harford and some of the other great coaches Luton had in the 80s. So I was kind of schooled by that style of playing and, and, and uh, that way of trying to set your team up to play. So the opportunity then to, to go to Luton was, was a, a no-brainer really for me. Luton were in the championship at the time. So this was 2006. They'd just finished outside the playoffs. They had on paper an unbelievable youth policy with players like Curtis Davis and Leon Barnett and Kevin Foley and all of these players going and playing in Luton's first team and then being sold on to the Premier League. So it, it was a great opportunity. And again, my first job was to go in there and look at player recruitment. So so what was your role, head of recruitment? Yeah, so I was working uh, in the academy with player recruitment. And again, trying to tackle two different age groups. So I think because Luton had had a little spell when they'd fallen down the leagues, they'd probably had to cut some budget back and cut some time back. So they felt that their, their, their 12s to 14s wasn't a particularly strong, strong age group for them or a strong set of age groups for them. So it was doing some work in those age groups, but also doing some work with the with the under eights and under nines as well. So with the 12s to 14s, we went in and we, we kind of focused a lot. And I think what I learned then straight away is that at that stage, maybe not now, but at that stage, a lot of the clubs around that stretch of the M1 going into North London did an unbelievable job with eights and nines, but maybe took their eye off the ball then if the players weren't ready. So I felt we had a lot of success 
mopping up where other clubs had maybe written written a player off at eight or nine, or maybe he'd even been into a club and come out again. And, and those players were just playing local football. So we were able to go in and by working hard and spending a lot of time and hours going and watching local football to find those players and bring them into that environment uh, and then allow them to have some success with us. And what were the main differences in terms of the comparisons, the contrast between Luton when you went in there and, and the previous clubs where you'd worked? Well, the first thing is Luton had a history of producing young players, international footballers, top-level footballers, uh, and knew how it was done. So I had to go in there and be open-minded to try and learn and not try and think that I'd already cracked the way of doing it just from my limited experience I'd already had in my career. Um, But I would say the facilities at Luton were very, very limited. A huge come down in facilities from from Russian and Diamonds, who'd just been relegated back out the Football League, to Luton, who were in the championship at the time, a huge step down in facilities. And to be honest with you, if I compare the level of players we had at Rushton compared to where they were when I went into Luton, probably not a huge difference at that stage. Luton had had a much richer history of producing young players, but were maybe going through a dip at that stage in terms of what was in their programme, nines to 18s. And, and so you talked about the facilities. I mean, what were the facilities at the time? Yeah, well, we used to train at Vauxhall, as it was now, the Brace, which is Luton's first team training ground now, uh, which was a very basic sand-based AstroTurf pitch that you shared. And you one, t- one time you'd have a men's five-a-side game going on on the other half of the pitch with players swearing and football's flying across. Next time there might be a hockey practice going on next to you. Uh, and then, obviously, the club was based out of, out of Kenilworth Road, which even then in those days was a very tired stadium, uh, a fantastic atmosphere on a match day, but not an amazing work environment. And then during my time as well, Luton moved to Ely Way as a training ground under Kevin Blackwell, which was a step up for Luton, but still not a great facility when I compare to what I got to work in at Norwich. But then also when you travel and go to to Tottenham or to Chelsea or to Southampton or to Liverpool or some of the other great facilities now in the UK. So facilities were facilities were limited, but. Uh, unbelievable catchment area in terms of young players and young players who are hungry and prepared to work hard and to to, to, to sacrifice what's needed to, to get where they need to get to in the game. And tell us about the playing style at Luton and the academy. What was that and, and what did it, was it different than where you've been before? Yeah, in, it, it was different in that it was defined, in that the teams played, uh, they tried to play, established play from the back was, was very clear. They wanted their central defenders to get on the ball and to be able to play. They wanted to try and play between lines and that went all the way up to the first team. So there was a there was a, a, a defined playing philosophy that was there at the club, whereas obviously when I'd gone into Russian and Diamonds, we were doing everything from the start, if that makes sense. Interesting. And so tell us a bit then, you know, as, as um, people work in academy football, you know, when you're trying to recruit someone, a lot of it's about trying to sell the club to the parents and the player. How did you, you know, convince players to come to Luton rather than, like, so you got you got your own Arsenal, you got Tottenham, Watford, those big clubs, powerhouses down the road maybe, or and then you got people at the other side up the M1. How did you compete with those clubs? Well, I think two things. I think first of all. Um, the, the history of the club and like I said at that time the club had I think six players playing in the Premier League I think it had two or three players who travelled to the World Cup uh, during that period as well so it had international and, and 
Premier League level players who'd come through the system. So you had that to sell the club and the history of the club. But we also had an unbelievable set of staff there. Um, and I, I always felt that once we could get a young player and his parents in front of those coaches, they would sell, they would really sell the club for us. Uh, and when I think about some of the people, and I'm, I'm going to leave people out here, which is, isn't deliberate, but there were so many great people. And when I think about uh, John D'Souza, now at Colchester United, Stuart English, now at Birmingham City, uh, Tony McCool, Jay Marshall, who's now head of player recruitment at Norwich, uh, Scott Smith, who's also at Norwich City now, uh, Alan Nielsen, lots of amazing coaches who, who've, who've gone on and worked and been academy managers or assistant academy managers, heads of coaching. Paul Driver came over with me from Rushton and Diamonds. So we had we had a really, really talented group of coaching coaches there who, who helped sell the club as well. Uh, Stuart Smith was already at the club when I went there and he, he was very, very good at trying to make sure the best eight and nine-year-olds stayed, stayed within within the club once, once, he, once we got them inside the door. Interesting. And then tell us then a little bit then about your next challenge and what's happened, what's, what's, what, was ne- what was the next uh, job opportunity and how did it come about? Well, the, the, the time at Luton, it became a very tough time towards the end um, because Luton had been relegated from the Football League because of a, starting with a minus 30 points due to financial irregularities. And when we were out of the Football League, we really struggled to keep players on contract because the Football League rules made that very difficult. So we were beginning to lose a lot of the top players and that made the job it became less and less about player development and more about just trying to keep the whole thing alive which we stuck with for two years and then eventually we lost a playoff final at the Etihad to uh, AFC Wimbledon and at that stage we knew all of the players were no longer protected and then it became messy the next year we were having to go to tribunals and this kind of stuff so the, the, the reason I got into football had disappeared and it became about survival and because I was a Luton supporter and passionate about it, I was giving it my everything and doing some insane hours to try and keep the whole thing alive. But some of the best coaches were being attracted by other clubs and the players were at that stage as well. So when I had the opportunity, that this is this was the first year of EPPP, so 2012, and uh, had the opportunity to go and meet, meet with Norwich City to become their head of player recruitment for the academy. Um, so it was a new project for Norwich, really. They'd made the step up from the old academy system to become a Cat 1, had invested a lot of money under uh, the board of directors there and the owner, owner Delia Smith. So the opportunity to go in there and, and work in a Cat 1 environment uh, was, again, a huge learning. Uh, much, much better facilities than they were at Luton. But again, I have to say that by the time we'd left Luton, we had some unbelievable players in the system, some unbelievable teams of players in the system. And when I went over to Norwich, Probably my first impression was this might actually be a step down in terms of the top level of players. So Norwich obviously had some good players in the system, but I probably felt Luton had more players with potential in their 9s to 18s programme at that stage than Norwich did. So it did feel almost a little bit like starting again in terms of having to go through that cycle again. Well, why, why do you think that was? Is, is that because of the catchment area or just maybe due to just you know investment and recruitment no 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 yeah it was it, it's ex- exactly those two things you just said there so you've hit the, n- the nail on both of them Norwich had had a spell where although I joined them in the Premier League they'd been relegated to League One a couple of years previously before Lambert had got back-to-back promotions and they'd had to cut right back on their promotion on sorry on their player recruitment so they had a really talented player recruiter called Paul Lowe who'd left the club he, he then went to Liverpool and is now at Tottenham and they just had to take their eye off the ball because it was about survival at that stage um, but also, 
the population density and diversity in Norfolk wasn't, in, in my impression going into the club, and also my impression having come out of the club, enough to support a Category 1 in a Premier League academy. So the first thing we began to do was to put, put together a strategic document about where we needed to invest our money um, from a recruitment point of view. And we identified three boroughs in London that we felt were the boroughs that were producing footballers at that stage. So we spent a lot of time and effort working with grassroots recruitment in there. What, club, also, what, boroughs, were they, what boroughs were they? Uh, off the top of my head, one of them was in North East London and the other two were in South London. Right. Uh, Lewisham was definitely one of them, so but, uh, I can't remember the other two off the top of my head. Like, I'm sure Walthamstow, 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 Waltham Forest was probably Forest one of those was, yeah. as well. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so we began to build a recruitment and a coaching team based out of London. Um, and also, obviously, EPPP opened the opportunity to be able to sign players for fixed amounts of money from other football league clubs as well. So we, we, we began to look at recruitment to, uh, uh, in that part as well. Um, and then after two years at Norwich, I got the opportunity to become academy manager as well. So that was an opportunity then to put some of my learning that I'd taken from, from Rushton and from Luton and from Wickham into a Category 1 environment. And the major thing is Norwich had a very, very good academy at that time. Great staff, really good multidisciplinary teams. Had just won the FA Youth Cup with a team that has got the Murphy Twins in it. Cameron McGeehan in it. Yeah, I remember, was that the game um, uh, at yeah, Stamford Bridge? Yeah, an un unbelievable game at Stamford Bridge. Wow. Two, two great teams. When you look back and think about the talent that was yeah. on display over those two legs, some unbelievable players. So it had, Norwich had a very, very successful academy. Uh, and, and my job was just to really go in then as academy director and try and put my own slant on things and to try and ensure that the, the, the success that we'd had in player recruitment in my first two years was, was continued. So in terms of it, that, that, how do you put your own slant on an academy with a good track record like that? Um, I, I, that was a challenge, Joel. I have to be honest with you. I found that hard because the, the previous academy director, Ricky, I, I'd known for many, many years. He, he was then the technical director at the club, so he was still there. And, and I think when you're going into that environment, you're, you're conscious constantly that if you try and bring something new in, it's almost like you're saying the old thing wasn't right or wasn't working. And when the person who, who was doing the job was still there that was difficult because often it wasn't the case of saying that it was just a case of saying maybe here's a different way of doing it so there was a lot of managing upwards as well as managing sideways and managing downwards and, and obviously at cat one it's a huge staff staff as well uh, both part-time and full-time um, and i think when i reflect back on that time i would probably do things a little bit differently for sure in terms of how you'd, how you'd set that staff up and maybe I wasn't brave enough to make some of the changes also that needed to be made from the outset. Um, but also I think that the thing that was the hardest challenge or the biggest challenge at Norwich was the system wasn't completely joined up in terms of the young players weren't, there wasn't a, an easy pathway from the academy into the first team. So if you look at Norwich now, I think I, I watched the uh, I watched the FA Cup game against Tottenham a few weeks ago before football disappeared off our screens and five academy players I think on the pitch during that game: Max Aaron's, Jamal Lewis, Todd Campwell, Ben Godfrey, and uh, Adam Edar came on as, as a substitute. And I, I would say that the group of players when I first joined Norwich in 2012, 2013. It's a hypothetical discussion, but one that should be had was whether that current group of players in Norwich's first team, the current group of academy players in Norwich's first team, are any better or any worse than the players who are already at the club? Or was just their pathway now clearer, more established, and have somebody who, who's able to 
to, to join the club up and say, actually, no, we can't bring this player in because Jamal Lewis is ready to play at left back. Or let's not bring another striker in this window now because Adam Eder is ready to be the fourth choice striker. So I think it was missing that person who was able to to do that. And it wasn't joined up enough at the top end, which ultimately, if you look at Chelsea now, Chelsea looks unbelievable because all of a sudden, all of these players that we've all known for many years are good enough to get in the first team, are in the first team and doing well. And everything looks looks rosy. But it needs somebody to come in and say, I'm brave enough to put those players in the team. I suppose bravery is everything, though, isn't it? I mean, for, for argument, well, Norwich would look, looked like they were going to get relegated this season. But they do do, you know, they get relegated, they come back up. Maybe next season they don't have such a good year. Suddenly, you know, maybe that system changes. I suppose it is, you know, how long, you know, do you, you know, it's, when, it's, you know when it's looking good, it's looking good. You know, when the sun's out, the sun's out. If you're not, if you know what I mean. No, but this is, this is the biggest piece of learning I've taken from that experience, I think. And if I'm lucky enough to go in and ever be a technical director, a sporting director at the club myself now, I think the thing you have to try and do and the thing we try and do here in Norway now is to ensure that the strategy and the vision is joined up from beginning to end and that everybody can buy it from supporters to the owners of the club buy into that. So what I think Stuart Webber's done brilliantly at Norwich uh, at is, is saying this is the strategy, we're going to believe in it. And even when things weren't looking great after Christmas in the championship and they were took nearer the bottom end of the table, the top end of the table, they didn't make any changes, they stuck with it. And even if they get relegated now, they'll still stick with it. Uh, they, they haven't tried to change things. They haven't tried to change their start, style of play. They've been brave and stuck with that. Um, and, and I think they'll, they'll, they'll reap enormous rewards from that. If nothing else, previously they were selling academy players for 10, 11, 12 million pounds a player in terms of when the Murphys mm. left the club, etc. Now, if you put a price on any of those five names that I mentioned previously, it would be several times more than that. It's interesting, so let's talk about one of those players, Max Ahrens, who obviously I know very well, and you do as well, for 10 years. Mm. I started working mm. with him when you were at Luton, ironically enough. Mm. Well, Jim mm. is just about to leave, so he had like an really interesting story, but I mean, what, when he came, to, he came to Norwich only a few years ago without a club, I mean, um, obviously with your relationship, were you involved in that decision, and did you envisage him going on in only a few years being one of the best right-backs in the Premier League? Yeah, I think... I was lucky enough to, to to work with Max and get to know both of his parents over over many years at Luton. Um, and I think um, when he when he chose to to leave Luton and, and uh, look to try and join a Category One club at the age of kind of fourteen fifteen, he found that hard because physically he hadn't developed at that stage. And I think clubs weren't prepared to take the gamble that was needed compensation wise in order to do to do that. Um, and when his his dad contacted me, um, we spoke about uh, Max's opportunity to come in at, into Norwich. I was very keen because Max had three three big attributes. Uh, technically, he was a very very strong player. Athletically, he had enormous potential. But his ability to learn and take on information, which is one of the absolute key things in player development, in my opinion, was, was at the highest level. So. Um, we were prepared to, to overlook the fact that he hadn't really gone through his growth spurt yet. And I think the big thing at Norwich then was to convince the coaches that he could come in and, and improve the group of players they had and they had the potential to get him out the other side. So I, I remember I had, had many conversations with, with, uh, with Max and with his mother about the plan of how we thought we'd try and do that. Um, and towards the end of my time at Luton, he was an under 12 playing in the under 13s and we began to use him 
in, in wide areas because of his repeated sprint ability uh, and because of his ability in 1v1 duels. So um, my job was obviously when he was going around the other Premier League clubs, he was being looked at as a, as a midfielder because that's where he played most of his time. And I felt if he had an opportunity at Norwich, it was probably going to be as a, a in, in wide areas. Ideally, we felt as a fullback because the style of play that Norwich played and continue to play now, where their fullbacks are very high up the pitch and get lots of opportunities to go 1v1 in, in and around the final third. But, but the, the, the challenge we had at the time was we had uh, our under-18 coach, Graham Murty, uh, who was an unbelievable fullback himself, great playing career internationally and nationally with Reading, um, and knew what it takes to, to be a fullback. And I think the way we tried to attack it was uh, one of the coaches at the time, Matt Gill, absolutely loved players with technical ability. That was his that was his bias in terms of when he looked at players. If they had technical ability and had a good, a good attitude, he'd really buy into them. So I, I very early on, after a week or two of Max being in at Norwich, I, I asked him to travel away to Riga to a tournament with the under-16s. Matt and Alan Nielsen took the team over there. And by the time they came back, Matt was buying into it. Technically, technically, he can do this. Technically, he can do that. So then it became a very easy sell to to to, to Graham Murty because at under 16, if you're going to bring a player in, really you have to give him a scholar at that stage. So so to get that across the line with Graham, then uh, Matt's experience with him was very very uh, important in order to do that. But to to answer your question and say, were we signing him thinking that we had a player who to go on to have the success he's had at the top end of the Championship and now at the Premier League. No, no, I think we'd be lying if we said that. We knew he had potential. We knew he had first-team potential at Norwich. But he's certainly uh, taken huge steps in a very short amount of time, and it's fantastic to see. So let's talk about then uh, where you are now. You've, 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 you've gone to sunnier climes, as they say. <laughs> you've, you've headed up north. So tell us about yeah. that, how it happened and where you are. Yeah, so so the changes were beginning to happen at Norwich and we could all see what was on the cards there as the club were beginning to have to make cutbacks to the academy and shrink the recruitment area of players and this kind of stuff. So at that stage, I'd had a real drive to, to work in Scandinavia and to experience life in Scandinavia. It's something that I talked about with family and friends for a long time. So uh, I'd had conversations with two or three clubs and I didn't really feel that the the academies were fantastic environments, but I didn't really feel that thing. You and I have already talked about solving this conversation in terms of that joined up approach from top to bottom and having a club all pulling in the same direction. I didn't really feel that those clubs were were able to offer me that at this stage. And the project that, that came about at Glimt uh, came from a random conversation with an agent when I was at Norwich, when we were talking about a, a player from somewhere else in Scandinavia. And he mentioned that a club, Buda Glimp, were looking for an academy director. And I, I have to be honest with you, I didn't even know where Buda was on the map. I'd travelled to Norway quite a bit with work and been to Oslo and been to, to Trondheim and one or two other cities in, in the country, but I'd never been to Buda. So I had the opportunity to come and visit here. And by the time we'd been out to visit and met with the club, I'd really, really bought into the project and what they were trying to do. And it was really joined up. They were really trying to put young players in and around the first team. Um, and they had a, a, a good group of players knocking on the door. They were one team in, in one county, and it's a huge county. It takes 12 hours to drive across the county. So uh, a, a big recruitment area geographically, if not in, in population size. Uh, and they were trying to do things properly. So I, I bought into the project and I've been lucky enough to be here two years now, and it's gone brilliantly. So tell us a bit about Bodo then, and you know, what sort of size club are they? What's 
What's the size of the city? What's your sort of catchment area in terms of population? Mm. Mm. The city's 50,000 people. Uh, it's got designs to, to grow and become 70,000 in the next 10 to 20 years. Um, the, the club is a small club, even by Norwegian standards, but has a very, very established style of play and a very proud history. Uh, because of the geography in Norway and one or two other social reasons, clubs in the north of Norway weren't allowed to play in the national leagues until the 1970s. Um, and then Budaglimt were the first club to come into the National League from the north of Norway. And then a few years later in 1975, won the cup. So really represented a little bit like the Basque region in, in Spain, represent the whole region and have the whole of the north of Norway love Budaglimt because of what they achieved in the 1970s. They have a very, very established style of play, a 4-3-3 style of play with one holding midfielder and two interlopers, as they're called here in Norway, attacking midfielders. Who, who, who join in uh, attacks and get in the box as often as possible. So a very established style of play. Uh, the population size of the county is 250,000 people. And the population of the, of the north of Norway is about half a million people. So that's our, that's our population density in terms of recruitment size. But the club has had a, had a, had a lot of success over the years in terms of giving young, young players the opportunity to go on and play, not just in the Norwegian top flight, but in Europe as well. So. Uh, in terms of in terms of the Premier League and players you might have heard at uh, Alexander Tetty at Norwich, uh, Stefan Johansson at Fulham. Um, I'm trying to think of of, uh, of other players who've come through the system. Matthias Norman went to Brighton and is now at Rostock. So so players have come through uh, and gone on and played at the highest level of Europe because the club is very prepared and very willing and has a strategy in order of blooding young players in the first team at a very young age. What's the average attendance at the at the games? It's about four and a half thousand. So the the two the two big sellout games a season are when we played Tromsø, who are local nor- rivals in the north of Norway, although they got relegated last year, and Rosenborg, who are the kind of the Manchester United of Norwegian football. So those are the two huge games. But there are also games with much smaller attendances than that as well. Um, I think one of the challenges for Norwegian football is a lot of football is televised. Uh, on a Sunday night, you can sit home and watch any of the games at because at, games in Norway kick off traditionally at six o'clock on a Sunday evening, and on Sunday you can sit home and watch any game. So they get very big crowds watching on TV, but it's hard then to try and attract those 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 guys into the gates. Uh, yeah. So then, um, tell us about the academy itself and the structure. What's mm. what, what's the setup in comparison to Norwich, for instance? Much smaller than Norwich, especially from a support staff. Probably bigger from a coaching staff point of view. Than Norwich, but smaller from a support staff point of view. So, uh, eleven full-time coaches on the coaching um, on it, in the coaching setup in the academy. Uh, only one physical coach or sports scientist, as it would be called in England, and only one physiotherapist. Uh, but the other big difference is the academy doesn't start to the age of thirteen, which is normal in Norway. Um, it's actually, uh, it's not legal in Norway to start selecting players before the age of 12. So um, when you think of a coaching staff that size without a foundation phase in there, you realise how lucky we are to have such a great resource to work with in terms of experience and, and, and coaches and player to coach ratio. Um, so, so all of the academies in Norway begin their recruitment at 12 and look at players at 11 and 12. Uh, but don't select for the first time till the end of the under-12 season in terms of preparing them for the under-13 year. And so what were your first impressions with the academy when you first went in there and 
in terms of do you think right these are the first things I've got to try and do or stamp my my sort of own style on yeah well I, I the, the first thing I did I was lucky that my first three months at the club were part-time because I was coming and going from the UK between January and March but so I, I was able to kind of step back a little bit during that period do a, do a really detailed SWOT analysis of what I felt the strengths and weaknesses were in every single area um, my first impression straight away was a really good blend of coaches so a good mixture of coaches who were both coming from a more academic background but also those who had a really good playing background as well uh, really good of group of players who'd been through the system in the coaching staff as well so knew the club inside out and some real kind of cultural leaders within the club so someone like Urian Berg in the club who oversees the grassroots section of the club because the club has a grassroots department as well and Urian is, is regularly recognized as one of the greatest players to ever come out of Norway had a fantastic playing career himself has played at the very highest level, played against Real Madrid in the Champions League when Rosenborg uh, beat, beat Real Madrid in the Champions League and so has played at this kind of level. But it was also a Buddha glimpse through and through, so have people who I can turn to and get advice from as well. Um, but in terms of the playing, uh, in terms of the players, my first impression was very similar to when I first walked in the door at Norwich. I thought there was a lot of good players in the system, but I thought the diversity of players wasn't probably wide enough in terms of saying, right, if we said here's a 13 or 14 year old who might have a potential to be uh, a central defender in the elite series or a winger in the elite series, I felt there probably wasn't the diversity needed compared to those lots of talented central midfield players and technical players who could get on the ball and play in small areas. So I think we had to maybe reassess the type of player we were bringing at 12 or 13 or maybe just diversify that a little bit. Um, it had a really, really detailed and well thought out um, methodology that was really, really well established. A guy who was the academy director before me here at the club, a guy called Oivin Everson, who's now working for the equivalent of the Norwegian FA overseeing uh, the academy system in Norway. And he built an unbelievably detailed, uh, well-researched playing methodology. So probably the strongest players playing methodology I'd ever worked with, a lot stronger than the one that I, I had myself had left at Norwich. So my learning there was huge. So give us a, so, give us a little taste of that. What, what do you mean by playing methodology? Give us a little bit, what is just like? it, 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 I think it was split into two areas, but in terms of the, the, the 13s to 19s playing methodology, it, it, the playing cycle is split into six different phases and then each of those split into sub phases. Uh, and the playing curriculum is always built around those phases at 13s to 19s and then has a technical and physical program that runs alongside that. At six to 12, which is via the grassroots program and via some of the work we do with development centers with 11s and 12s, it was very, very focused on individual player development, technical development of players. And again, he, he traveled and had an unbelievable access to, to the, the very highest people in European football in terms of build, building that syllabus. Um, and, and I felt very lucky that I could go in and go, wow, there's something here. And in one of the first meetings we'd had with the staff, the, the staff said to me, we've hardly had time to scratch the surface with this please can we don't let, let's not do any changes for for that so for two years now we haven't touched that we've really just worked on it and and said what works what doesn't work what bits do we need to tweak and then last november we had a big review where we kind of locked ourselves away for a week and went into everything and everybody had the chance to present back on their thoughts on it and that's led to some minor but only very very minor tweaks to the whole thing because I, I, and the, the academy classification, which is the equivalent of the audit process here in Norway, has recognised our methodology as being kind of cutting edge, a cutting edge methodology on a European level. So it would be crazy to try and change that. 
what are the phases then the six phases you talked about yeah they talk about established attack and established defense so they're the two big ones kind of in and out of possession uh, we play a really high pressing style of football so they talk about the press Jenvening, uh, as it's called in Norwegian and the ability to win the ball back high up, up high up the pitch and if you need to do that what, what's the starting position for your goalkeeper and your back line etc they talk about playing through the press as well and then obviously there's the two transitions as well and then just tell us a little bit about what the main challenges is as an Englishman in Norway uh, coming in what, what, was there any cultural cultural things that you had to deal with or things to get used to uh yeah i think uh the the one of the biggest challenges is i thought it'd be a lot easier to pick up the language than it has been because the workplace is an international workplace there was already one english coach on the staff when i joined it uh tom dent who takes our under 19 team now um, and also because there were seven international players in the first team, the first team coaches were coaching in Norwegian. Norwegian was being spoken in a lot of, sorry, were coaching in English. English was being spoken in a lot of the meetings. So I, I thought I would by absorb, I, I would thought I would absorb Norwegian a lot quicker than I actually have actually had. So we've been having a tutor now for uh, probably 14 months, but my Norwegian still isn't at the level where I'd like it to be. And that's something I have to really work hard on to, to ensure it is because Although I can have perfectly good conversations with players and coaches, I, I can spot very easily and very simply that when you're trying to get a player to open up to you and have a really proper detailed conversation about how they're feeling or what might be stressing them, to have that conversation, to speak from the heart in a foreign language is a very difficult one to do. So I have to be able to make sure that even if I can't reply in Norwegian, I can certainly at least take the information on in Norwegian in order to have that level of conversation you need to have as an academy director. And tell us about the players over there. I mean, we all often associate, you know, physical assets with the Scandinavian players. Big, you know, those Viking boys. Look at the yeah, national teams; yeah. they're very, they're often, you know, yeah. six foot slow, big units, athletic. You mm. know, is that the sort of um, player you're getting through the door? I think that, that certainly would have been true of Norwegian football uh, when it had a lot of success in the 1990 and early 2000s, when there was a lot of Norwegian club players coming over to play in the Premier League. But I think there's a shift in that now. Um, I, I was lucky enough to be exposed to a lot of Scandinavian recruitment when I worked in uh, at Norwich. So I kind of knew the best players in each of the countries in Scandinavia uh, from, from kind of 15 to 20. And what you saw was a new generation of players coming through from each of those countries uh, who, who, who really defied that, that age old uh, stereotype of what a Nordic and what a, a Norwegian footballer looks like. And I think if you look at the, more, the modern breed of Scandinavian footballer from someone like Alexander Isak from, from Sweden to some of the young players now coming out of, to, of, of Iceland and of Denmark in terms of Christian uh, Eriksson, Christian Eriksson and now in terms of Norway as well some a young player from our, our own academy Håkan Evian who, who went on to have an unbelievable season last year his first full season in, uh, in our first team he'd made, he'd made appearances but his first full season last season and he went on to get the Norwegian young player of the season and the Norwegian full player of the season award uh, and got a big move to, to, to Holland on the back of it uh, technically an unbelievable footballer great athletic ability in terms of his agility and his ability to change direction and wriggle out of small spaces and create opportunities with a, a wide range of passes and his ability to open up the game in the final third 
Uh, and I think now if you look at, 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 at the success that Alfie Ingerhaland's having in terms of the success that Berg at Sheffield United is having and, and many others, uh, I think Norwegian football will, will be riding the, the, the crest of a wave over the next few years. And it's a shame, obviously, with, with international football being delayed as it is over the next few weeks and months because Norway were going into a playoff situation to qualify for the Euros. But if, if, if the Euros are delayed till next summer and the playoffs are delayed as well, I think that might even suit Norwegian football anymore because all of these players are very young still and to have a few more months of, under, of development under their wing will really serve them well going into that. Do you think that's um, a result of a different look, a, di- a different recruitment angle uh, in terms of maybe the, the, the country evolving the players? A bit like English football, you know, where if you looked yeah. at the old English youth teams, used to be very much based on physicality, big units, and when it, the, the English DNA came through, Dan Ashworth, Southgate, Dan Machichi, those guys started bringing a change in the culture in the country. Do you think that's happened in Norway? Yeah, it has definitely. Uh, I, I think it's a little bit further behind on the curve than the UK, just because obviously EPPP was fully implemented in 2012 and there was a lot of great work happening before that as well. So the kind of the architects of that, the people that you've mentioned, but also people uh, like John McDermott and Gary Izzett at Crystal, Crystal Palace and people like this have given these young players an opportunity, Neil Barth at, at Chelsea. So I think the... Uh, Norwegian football is behind on the curve, but there's a lot of good people now working at the clubs, uh, bringing good ideas through and allowing creative players that opportunity to shine and uh, uh, creating uh, a learning environment within their own clubs that those creative players that might have been overlooked in the past have got the opportunity to go forward and shine and and have the opportunity to to play. And what about yourself? What what are your your personal ambitions in the game? Yeah, I'd like to uh, become a... Uh, a sporting director or a technical director, um, maybe here in Scandinavia first, but if not, maybe in the UK. Um, I've, I've had a, I've been very lucky to be given this opportunity here in Norway, and there's certainly no thought of leaving this this opportunity certainly for the next few years because it's a it's an unbelievable lifestyle that that we're able to have here in, in Norway, and it's a great club and a real opportunity to make a mark as well in terms of some of the young players who are around, around it. So there's no hurry in that for me, but I would like my next step to be that because I think I've, I've been very lucky in the last 23 years to be exposed to lots of great practice, make lots of mistakes, work in very, very different environments to clubs where you literally had no budgets to clubs where you had multi-million pound academy budgets and were working in the Premier League. And I think that that opportunity now to, to, to put some of that kind of strategic thinking and uh, planning in place at the highest level would be my next natural career step. And what advice would you have for a young coach who would like to have a career like yourself in the game? Um, I I think two different things. Firstly, you've got to expose yourself to the hours and those hours might look unglamorous. They might be with players who don't always want to be there and therefore your learning has to be to create an environment where they do want to be there. But I think it's also just don't say no uh, I remember when we used to go out and give young coaches the opportunity to come in from universities or from the local community to Norwich and volunteer or be around the coaching groups. So these were people who were maybe just having a level one coaching qualification to start off with. And some of them sometimes came in and thought, well, if I'm not getting to lead the under 16 session, I, I don't want to be here. 
and, and I was looking to give well, actually our under 16 is a is a someone who's done 10 years of coaching has an A license and has five or 600 games at the senior level he, he's done his time in the trenches and he's still doing his time now to try and get to where he wants to get to in his career so just don't say no to opportunities say yes to every single opportunity because you never know where it will lead to what about advice to a young player or particularly a parent to a young talented footballer um, I think the most important thing for any young footballer is to be in an environment where they feel happy and they feel appreciated, but they also feel challenged. So I think for a young player, it doesn't matter what category the club is or what division the first team are playing in. If you're happy there and you've got a good, good group of friends that you're developing with, then you will get to where you want to get to, uh, especially if that is also in a challenging environment. And I think if you look... A story that's being told a lot in Norway at the moment is kind of Alfie Inge Haaland's success story because obviously Alfie Inge Haaland's the name that's on a lot of lips around European football for the success he's had this season in both the Champions League and at a domestic level. But he didn't even play academy football. He stayed out of academy football to the age of 16 because he was in a great group of friends who were all good footballers. So he had good footballers surrounded around him and the coach was an A-licensed coach and they were organising games every week against academy teams. So he was in an environment that was challenging for him. He was enjoying it because he was with his friends every single week. And they were playing against good teams every single week to be tested. So I, I sometimes think you have to forget the badge and look at look at the environment. Look at look and ask yourself, are you happy? Are, are you enjoying going to football training every week? Because if you are enjoying going to football training, you'll have every chance of, of fulfilling your potential. And I'd be amiss if I didn't ask you about the My Personal Football Coach app. You guys have just signed up as a club partner. Tell us a bit about yeah, your sure. experience with that. Well, we're a week a week into using it. Uh, it's been something that was on our medium-term targets to try and bring on board this summer because we have a huge geographic challenge within our county. If you can imagine trying to reach players six hours either side of us, north and south, who don't move to the club till they're 16. So they might be in our academy at 13, 14, but a majority of their training is going on in their home environment. So we do a lot of work with club development in terms of working with trainers in those clubs to make sure that their team sessions are matching our methodology, but also to be able to give those players detailed individual work to replicate that outside of their team environment was very important. Um, what fast forwarded it was we felt that with the need to be able to provide really high level technical work now immediately to our players in the club, because the rules in Norway are very, very clear set out by the government because of the coronavirus we are not allowed to be on the pitch with our players. That's in the law now. So we can give our players an individual plan, we can discuss it with them and get feedback, but we're not allowed to step on the pitch with them and deliver that session at any level, including first team level. So the need to have that plan in place immediately was was, was fast forwarded, which is why we, we brought the app in straight away and the feedback from the players in the first week has been really positive. We've had some great videos with some unbelievable backdrops with them doing it. And it's been tough because a lot of the a lot of the football pitches in the city are closed down because of obviously what's happening in society right now. Um, and there's a lot of heavy snow in the north of Norway at the moment. So playing space is limited, but the players have been really, really creative in terms of the environment they've created to put those practices on. Greg, thanks very much, mate. It's been fantastic. Appreciate your time. Thanks. So I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Dynamic Ball Mastery Program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. 
Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game. 